Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was when you came on your official visit, they played like the old school movie with the four horsemen and uh, the old school Notre Dame, and you got the... And there's a... Now that's a follow-up question, <laughs> Eric Hansen. That's a heck of a follow-up question right there. If you can be physical, and if you can take the breath out of somebody by hitting them, man, it don't matter how many yards or, or what the offense is or what the schemes are, that, that'll always be the same. But I still think there's a place for Notre Dame and the ideals of Notre Dame football in the wide, broad scope of the sport right now. Uh, Eric, I'm hoping I don't run into you in South Bend because you'll probably cost me around a drink. From the South Bend Tribune and ND Insider, this is the Pot of Gold Podcast with Tyler James and Eric Hansen. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Pot of Gold and the Insider Podcast. I'm Tyler James, and I'm joined once again by the one and only Eric Hansen. Together, we cover Notre Dame football for ND Insider and the South Bend Tribune. Notre Dame Pro Day is in the books, and the Irish finished their third practice of the spring on Thursday. Those practices include an important competition for the starting quarterback job in which Wisconsin grad transfer Jack Cohn is the favorite to win that competition. And uh, we wanted someone to help properly set our expectations for Jack Cohn, so we invited Jesse Temple, the Athletics Wisconsin beat writer, to drop some knowledge on us. So, Jesse, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. Jesse, I, I want to start by asking you, how do you think Jack Cohn will handle everything that comes with the situation that he's stepping into at Notre Dame? Is he the kind of guy who can sort of get his teammates to quickly buy into him and believe in him and trust him? He is exactly that kind of guy. I think this is really the perfect situation for him, which is obviously why he wound up at Notre Dame when he weighed his options after entering the transfer portal. He's not a huge rah-rah guy he doesn't carry himself like he knows he's the quarterback and he's the man like some of those you know five four-star guys who have kind of been treated that way since they were a freshman in high school I mean Jack obviously was a tremendously talented high school quarterback in New York but he's not a big media guy he doesn't talk very much but when he does talk especially among his teammates they listen and I think he's the type of guy who's lead by example and, and that's a cliche that People have heard a hundred times with different players over the years, but that epitomizes who Jack is when he uh, was the backup quarterback here. And Alex Hornibrook was a a longtime starter. Alex wound up transferring to Florida state. Jack knew he was going to be the guy. He was the next in line. And he made a point during that time to set aside moments to get to know guys on the team. He would sit with somebody different every day at the meal table at lunch. He would organize events. So, his teammates could meet outside of the football facility and he wanted to back up his, whatever talk there may have been with, with actions, with, with genuinely connecting with people. And I bring all that up to say, it's not an easy situation to step in at a place like Notre Dame and instantly be expected to be the starter, but he's exactly the type of guy that can do that because the other teammates at Notre Dame who may not know him, will see how hard he works. will see what he wants to do to succeed. And they will want to follow his lead because he's a talented quarterback. 
Jesse, from what you've seen, do you think he's as good as Ian Book? Well, I uh, will admit that I haven't watched a ton of Notre Dame football. I may have last season, but uh, a certain matchup between the two teams never materialized. So I honestly can't speak to everything that Ian did at, at Notre Dame, but I can tell you what Jack will provide. And I think he's going to be a solid, steady presence who is not going to beat himself. Who's not going to put Notre Dame in a terrible spot because the defense is going to be backed up all the time in their own, you know, red zone. That's just not what Jack did. I thought that was one of the things that he excelled at at Wisconsin because I mentioned Alex Hornibrook, the, the previous starter before Jack, and he won a ton of games and helped lead him to an Orange Bowl win in 2017 when that team went 13-1. and one. But he threw a lot of interceptions. And it was noticeable once Jack took over as the starter that he, he really limited those mistakes. And the one year that showed what Jack was capable of was 2019 when he was uh, the, the full-time starter. He had gotten a few games under his belt the year before as a starter. He started all 14 games for Wisconsin as, as, as the quarterback who led him to a Rose Bowl. He threw 18 touchdowns. He only had five interceptions. And he finished with the third highest single, so, single season passing yard total in school history. And he was in the top 10 that season in the FBS in completion percentage. He completed 69.6% of his passes. So I, I believe that's the version of Jack Cohn that Notre Dame is going to get. Obviously, it's unfortunate that Jack's situation didn't work out the way he had hoped at Wisconsin. But like I said, he couldn't be in a better spot at Notre Dame. And I think you're going to get that kind of quarterback if you're a, a, an Irish fan. I think what Notre Dame fans probably are most concerned about are two things. One is, can he throw the deep ball? And number two is, how will his athleticism, you know, he didn't run the ball a lot at Wisconsin. Can he run the ball in Notre Dame's offense? So, yes, <laughs> he can run the ball. I'll start with this. High school football, much different from Wisconsin or Notre Dame, but he ran for 2,551 yards in high school and 33 touchdowns. And he averaged about six and a half yards per carry. That was not a skill set that was required at Wisconsin. However, when he had to do it, he did. He was, he was really a tough son of a gun. I mean, you watch, if you were to turn on the tape from the Michigan game from 2019, which is a really important game for the Badgers, I think he scored two rushing touchdowns that game. One of them was a really long run. And the thing about it is if you're a defense, you don't anticipate that he's going to do that, but he can. Uh, and there was another game that I remember where they ran like a na naked bootleg for him. It might've been the pinstripe bowl actually late in a victory against Miami. That was the year before in 2018. And he faked out the entire team and wound up scoring. So he can run. That's not why he's going to be there, but I think it's a skill set that he can provide. And then the other question about the deep ball, that was something that Wisconsin fans were a little concerned about going into 2019, because especially in 2018, it just seemed like Wisconsin wasn't necessarily all that willing to air it out when Jack was there. And I think Jack was more likely to look for the check down. And like I, when I talked about that, he, he's not going to beat himself. He would have been more likely to make the decision that was going to keep the chains moving rather than throw a long ball that, maybe had a 50-50 shot of getting picked off or something not going Wisconsin's way. But I think he did a lot better job of that in 2019. Now, he also had the benefit of a guy named Quintes Cephas, who was drafted by the Detroit Lions, and he was the number one target at Wisconsin. I think Cephas was targeted 50 more times than any other 
receiver or tight end on the roster that season. So he was like, without question, the number one guy. So if Jack has that type of target, he's going to take advantage of it. So that may have been a long winded answer, but he can run when he needs to, and he can air it out when he needs to, especially if that's what Notre Dame, the type of situation Notre Dame wants to put him in. Jesse, would he have been the starting quarterback last season, if not for his injury? Well, it's a fascinating development, the way things unfolded. So for, for anybody listening who doesn't know the, the Jack Cohn story from 2020, he would have been the starter. He, they opened fall camp and he was in position to be the starter. I just didn't see necessarily a direct path for Graham Mertz to walk in and take the job from Jack. Now, Graham, Notre Dame fans may know, I think the Irish offered him a scholarship in high school. He committed very early to Wisconsin. The, the Badgers were his third offer. And at the time it was just sort of like, okay, who's this guy? He's a three-star quarterback from Kansas. And after Mertz's uh, junior season, he blew up and became a national recruit, a four-star guy, one of the top quarterbacks in the country, and everybody offered him. So we've all known his talent level, and it was just sort of a matter of time until he became the guy at Wisconsin. But Jack walked in last season as the quarterback who had just led him to a Rose Bowl, a guy who had started 18 games, and who, like I said, put up these really good numbers very quietly, I think, put together the best season by a Wisconsin quarterback since Russell Wilson way back in 2011. Now, that may say something about the quarterbacks that followed <laughs> Wilson, but it was going to be really hard for Graham to take the job, I thought. So then Jack got hurt. He injured his foot um, early in fall camp in a non-contact situation, and he had to undergo surgery. And Graham went out in the season opener against Illinois and lit the world on fire. It was one of the most unbelievable performances by a Wisconsin quarterback that I've ever seen. I've covered the program for a decade. And the fact that he was doing it in his first career start as a second year freshman in a big 10 game in prime time was like, Oh my God, what is there's no way Jack can come back in whenever he's healthy and, and start again. Graham was 20 for 21 in that game. He threw for 248 yards, five touchdowns, no interceptions. Then the offense sputtered. There were a lot of COVID-19 cases. They had to cancel a couple games. I think if Jack were healthy, he, he would have been able to contribute. But there came a certain time where Jack was in position at some point to play again. And this is not something that the coaching staff has openly shared. And so some of this is speculation because Jack's not one to talk about this. I don't know if you've had a chance to talk to him yet. But like I said, not a big talker, not going to outwardly say what went wrong. But the coaching staff had to make a decision at a certain point. If Jack's healthy enough to play can we guarantee Jack the starting spot, which he had before? Or do we say, if you come back, we can't guarantee that. Maybe you'll split reps with Graham, but we can't just say you're going to be the starter because of Graham's potential and what he's done. And I'm led to believe that because Jack couldn't know for sure that he was the starter, he felt like he deserved that opportunity and felt like he could get it somewhere else, which is why he wound up transferring and going to Notre Dame. So if he hadn't gotten hurt, yeah, I think he would have started – um, at least to begin the season. I don't know how it would have played out because it was just the most bizarre season I've ever seen. Like a lot of people who covered college football, but Wisconsin's case in particular was just nuts. They three games wound up being canceled. Like the entire offense, it seemed like was hurt or had COVID-19 at different points in the season, including Graham. So it was pretty wild. Yeah. <laughs> From being an AP top 25 voter, they were, you know, you watch that first game against Illinois and you're like, wow, they are really good. And then it just fell apart when they started getting the COVID and, and games canceled and so forth. Do you think Jack is going to be considered a, an NFL prospect after this year? 
I think he could put himself in position to be, and there have not been very many Wisconsin quarterbacks that have been at that level. But based on what he did in 2019, I have no reason to believe he can't continue to play at that high of a level if he's got the skill players around him. So I certainly can see him getting a shot. I don't know exactly what that looks like. It's awfully difficult to predict, especially going into a season when I haven't seen him yet at Notre Dame and don't know what the Fighting Irish will look like. But I do believe he's got NFL potential. Uh, Jesse, what what would you say are, are Jack's best physical traits? Well, his toughness, for one. I know I mentioned that earlier, but I believe it was the Michigan game, and he got – he, he suffered a high ankle sprain and he never really talked about it, but it was noticeable that in the games after that, Wisconsin was using a shotgun pistol, um, which is something that Jack played a lot in, in high school, but at Wisconsin, a lot of the time it's pro style offense. It's get up under center. And I was even watching it. I was kind of wondering like, what, what's going on here. And it was because he wasn't as mobile as he should have been. Cause he was dealing with a high ankle sprain. He played through it. A lot of times you you wouldn't have necessarily known it. So it's the toughness. I think he brings some physicality and it's the quiet confidence and leadership. Those are some of the traits that stand out to me about him. Just looking at Wisconsin going into 2021, I know they've had some assistant coaches move on and except for their defensive coordinator, which I'm sure they're jumping up and down about. But uh, And then it looks like from reading your stories that Paul Christ is going to retake the play calling and coach the quarterbacks. Do you think that that's going to make a big difference with their offense? Yes, I do. Um, You know, last year, so Paul made his bones as a kind of an offensive guru. And that's how he got to where he was before he was a head coach at Wisconsin and, and Pittsburgh. He was the offensive coordinator here, and he was in charge of leading the two highest-scoring offenses in school history, the the Russell wilson moneyball led team in 2011 and the team in 2010. Both those teams averaged – more than 40 points per game. He was still calling the plays here his first five seasons. And last year he said he felt like he passed the play calling duties off to Joe Rudolph, who's the offensive line coach. He said he felt like with the the wild off season, the COVID-19 situation that he couldn't devote as much time as he wanted to, to calling the plays and, and also be the head coach to deal with the whole team. It's hard to say if it's because the offense wasn't good last year that he took the the play calling duties back. I don't know how fair that is because they lost almost their entire offense. Their top two wide receivers barely played. And it's not like Wisconsin's fourth wide receiver is a four or five star guy that you can throw in there. Like at a lot of other programs, their offensive line was decimated among other things, but either way, he's taken the play calling duties back. I do wonder what it's going to look like because I wonder, will he be stretched too thin? You're in charge of the team. You're handling the play calling duties. Okay, you've done that before. But you're also in charge of the quarterbacks. And I imagine there's going to be a graduate assistant helping out with the quarterbacks. That's kind of what the previous quarterbacks coach, John Budmeyer, did before he was elevated into the, the quarterback's role. But that's a lot of time that you have to spend. Those, those quarterbacks worked endlessly with the previous quarterbacks coach. So. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but he is obviously very confident in what he can do. He says he's had experience doing all three things. And even though they may not be all together in the same season, he thinks it'll be best for the team. So that's kind of where things stand on that. And one thing that Paul wound up doing at Wisconsin was the quarterback's coach became the offensive coordinator at Colorado state. But instead of Phil, the quarterback's coaching job, he used that 10th assistant coaching spot to fill the cornerbacks role because defensive coordinator Jim Leonard, who you mentioned, 
not only was he the D coordinator, but he was in charge of both the safeties and the cornerbacks. So they, they use the 10th assistant coach to do that. So Leonard will still focus on the safeties. That's a position he played at Wisconsin in 10 years in the NFL. Um, But Paul felt like that would be the best use of the 10th assistant coach. And by doing that, it meant that Paul had to be the one to be the quarterback's coach. Hopefully we don't have anything to prevent Notre Dame and Wisconsin playing against each other this season. What, what are the expectations for the Badgers going into 2021? Well, I think last year is an anomaly. You can kind of, I think, throw it away. Wisconsin went four and three. They had a three game stretch where they lost every game and didn't score in single digits. That hadn't happened in 30 years, but they've got a lot of, guys from last season who were seniors that decided to use that free year of extra free year of eligibility and come back, including their top two wide receivers who didn't play very often. They've got their, their top tight end back. They've got four starters on the offensive line back. I think that this team, the expectation is always the same to compete for the West division title and maybe give Ohio state a run for their money in the big 10 championship, assuming the Buckeyes are there. And I have no reason to believe anybody else can beat (laughs) Ohio state these days. So that's kind of my expectation for Wisconsin. The Big Ten West has gotten a lot better, but Graham Mertz has another year under his belt. The defense returns eight starters, and this is a a typical, I think, Wisconsin team. They've got to figure out their running back situation, but they're going to do what they do and out-tough a lot of teams in the Big Ten. Jesse, the last one for me is what what makes Leonard so good as a defensive coordinator? Because, I mean, you look at their stats – year after year when he's there and you just say, you know, they don't have five-star talent and they get really good results. Yeah. He is tremendously intelligent. You, you certainly can say that about a lot of football coaches. It's not only the intelligence though, it's the way that he's able to disseminate really complex uh, football terms into easily digestible bites for his players. Several years ago, when he was the defensive backs coach, I had an opportunity to sit in on a meeting room and um, was just kind of blown away by how he went about things and the way he expressed what the expectations were for the team. But you listen to any guy who's played for him and they will call him a genius. Maybe that term is overstated, but from a football perspective, he really is. And it says something that Jim walked into Wisconsin with no coaching experience whatsoever. And by the second year as him being an assistant coach, he was elevated to the defensive coordinator role. He was basically a coach on the field during his 10-year NFL career, somebody that someone like Rex Ryan relied on a lot. And then Leonard retired, took a year off in 2015. And in 2016, he was the defensive backs coach here at Wisconsin in 2017, the D coordinator. And, and you see the stats that you mentioned. They're basically in the top 10 defensively in most major statistical categories. And every year, Leonard is a candidate for different coaching positions. He was a after 2017, he was a candidate for the defensive coordinator role at Florida State, Texas A&M, Alabama turned down those overtures. He was mentioned for the Los Angeles Rams defensive coordinator job after the 2019 season. And just in February, he interviewed and was offered the defensive coordinator role with the Green Bay Packers and turned it down to stay at Wisconsin. So that says a heck of a lot about what he values and how he views Wisconsin, a state that he's from, that he grew up in. He played for the Badgers. And he said he didn't want to go out like that with the way the COVID season happened. He would feel a specific type of way about leaving after that. So He wants to help Wisconsin win a national championship and the players believe in him. And the fact that he's got that street cred of being in the NFL for 10 years makes guys want to listen to him because they can follow that path and get to the NFL too. That's what they believe. Jesse, last week for me, um, wanted to ask one more about Jack Cohn. If we wanted to give Notre Dame fans some homework, um, a reason to be excited about Jack Cohn, what game would you suggest they try to 
find on uh, whatever service they could find a, a, an old football game on and watch that to feel good about Jack Cohn coming to Notre Dame. I would go to the Minnesota game in the regular season finale in 2019. As it turned out, the winner of that game was going to represent the West division. That was the year that the Gophers were contending for a college football playoff spot for a lot of the season. And I remember Jack stepped up and made a couple epic throws, deep balls down the field to Quintez Cephas. And it was like a cutting snowstorm. And he just ripped the balls through the wind, tight spirals on a rope, delivered them. He threw a couple touchdowns that day, threw for 280 yards, and he helped Wisconsin clinch the Big Ten West and go on to play Ohio State in the Big Ten championship game. So that's the one, as you ask that question, that immediately stands out to me. But um, he did that to a lot of different teams. And I also think the Michigan game is another team, another game that is worth watching because there's one throw that I specifically remember Paul Christ is not necessarily a riverboat gambler, but he he went for it on fourth down on a handful of occasions in that game. And one of them, they dialed up a deep passing play and no surprise Quintez Cephas was on the other end, but Jack Cohn just delivered in critical moments. So those are two games that stand out. Well, I know, I know Notre Dame fans will look for any excuse to watch Michigan lose a game. So I'm sure they'd be happy to turn that, that game on. <laughs> uh, well, Jesse, that's all we got for you. We really appreciate taking your time uh, to join us and share your insight on Jack Cohn and the Wisconsin program today. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on. And hopefully we can see each other at an actual Wisconsin Notre Dame game this season. All right. Now it's time for Place Your Bets. How much you want to make a bet I can throw a football over the mountains? Our segment dedicated to the degenerates is back. I put my bookie hat on for a hodgepodge of prop bets of sorts. Um, so first one I have for us, Eric, is how many quarterbacks will start a game for Notre Dame this season? Well, I'm going to say two. I think that Jack Cohn will be the starter in the opener. Although again, I'm open to being surprised. Um, but I think there may be a point where, he gets injured, you know, just as bumped up for a game and somebody else needs to start kind of like when book had to sit out after, um, you know, having the ribs and Brandon Wimbush had to start or Brandon Wimbush having to sit out a game books freshman year and book starting at North Carolina. It seems like that happens more often than not. Yeah. I'm, I'm going with two as well. I I think it, it's probably the safest bet. Um, I don't feel confident enough in feeling good about one quarterback for sure to say, yeah, I think this quarterback one is good enough to start the whole season and two will be healthy the whole season. Obviously Jack Cohn does have an injury history coming off the foot injury at Wisconsin. So um, I like my odds better that uh, he doesn't necessarily start every game. So I'm going with two as well. Next one I have is over under one and a half transfers into Notre Dame by the season opener. I'm going to go over. Um, I think that there's a lot of good players in the portal now, and there will be more after spring. And I think that's going to be very attractive. Uh, Again, it's harder to get the underclassmen transfers into Notre Dame because of credits. It's very easy to get the grad transfers, but when when I'm guessing, you know, again, it's we're still putting puzzle pieces together. I'm guessing that Notre Dame could probably use a defensive end, a corner, and a safety. Um, and I think they'll probably get two out of those three positions filled. Yeah, I'm going over as well. I don't 
I don't yet have a couple of players in mind specifically, um, but like you mentioned, there are those positions of needs, whether it's on defense at corner or safety. I think corner is probably more, I, I guess I don't know. I guess they're probably equally as, as in need of, of another transfer at, at, at both positions. I'm curious like how the, but adding a safety transfer would be treated by a guy like Houston Griffith, who was talked to yeah. um, and then uh, if they were to take a, a safety coming in, I'd be curious to see what, what kind of uh, reaction that would spawn. But uh, I do think even though there hasn't been a ton of action on that front yet, um, there are more and more guys entering the portal by the day. And I think uh, Notre Dame will uh, do its best to try and get a couple here if they can. So I'm going to go over as well. Next one, who will start the most games at the rover position this season? That one's tough. I think the easy easy answer is Isaiah Rutherford, and I don't think that's going to be the answer. Isaiah Pryor. Isaiah Pryor. Isaiah Rutherford <laughs> is going to start for somebody else's defense. Is it Arizona? Is Arizona, that where Arizona. I, Isaiah Pryor. <laughs> um, yeah, so the, I guess the wrong answer was Isaiah Rutherford. Uh, but Isaiah Pryor, you know, kind of had the inside track. Uh, but Paul Mawala's coming back from his injury a lot more quickly from that torn Achilles. And he, so he's ahead of schedule. But I think Jack Kaiser's going to be the guy. I just think he's too good of a football player not to be one of their top three linebackers. So my – and I think that that – I think that the Rover will have a little bit different responsibilities. It's going to line up with what Jack does well. I think it's interesting. I'm not sure that I would consider Isaiah Pryor the favorite. I, I think Paul Moala would have had the inside track if not for his Achilles injury. Sure. I'm not sure how capable he will be. I mean, I, it, it was a, a surprise that he was even put out in front of the media <laughs> last Saturday to talk to us about his recovery and where he's at. I know he's running around now, but – um, I, I, he still has a long way to go. Um, so he could do that. So I went with Isaiah Pryor as well, but I thought that was going to be more of an upset pick than, than a favorite pick. Um, I, I think he's a bit overlooked. I mean, I'm intrigued by his skill set at the position. Um, and I think, I, I think one of the difficulties about this season and, and sort of watching, well, I guess hearing at this point, hearing about the rover position competition is, we have to understand that it's not going to look the same as Jeremiah Usukoromoa, no matter who's playing the rover position. Notre Dame doesn't have a person that's going to play quite like he did and be able to do some of the things that he did, especially in slot coverage. So um, it's going to look different. And, and obviously Marcus Freeman has the uh, freedom to make that position be whatever he sort of wants it to be in his defense. They could be, at, they, they could be asking that position to do different things, um, even though, um, they seem to be keeping the name Rover. I'm not really sure exactly how the responsibilities will line up. I think <laughs> uh, Rover is just a cool name, and it, I think it's sort of stuck and, and been uh, and has been so important to Notre Dame's defense that I think there, there's value in keeping the name, whether they're, whether it's doing the same things that it has done in the past. Uh, next one I have for us is: Will Notre Dame finish the 2022 recruiting cycle better than number eight on either Rivals or 24/7 Sports? You know the hard part for me to calculate is how large the class is going to be because that definitely does influence right. where they end up in the rankings. I'm going to go optimistic and say they do finish higher than eighth. I, I think, 
I would be more confident in saying that about the 2023 class because I think they've really got a lot of momentum there. But I think they're involved with enough top prospects in the 2022 class to elevate their their number. Yeah, I, I, I set the line before doing or re-looking at my homework of where Notre Dame's classes have finished during the, the Kelly era. Um, and then it's like, man, maybe I set that line too high because I, I thought – seven or, or higher is a good is a good aiming point for Notre Dame. I think it could be possible, but history says it's not necessarily. Um, Notre Dame hasn't finished better than number eight on rivals or 24-7 sports since that 2013 recruiting class, which is the best of the, the Brian Kelly era. That's For some reason, that's like they just haven't been able to get over that. It's not just the top ten hump. It's top eight. They've had a, a, a ninth-ranked class, um, and they seem to settle in just outside of the top ten or at number ten, but I think they can, but I'm going to go with no, just based on sort of how things tend to play out. I'm, it, I'm curious because I think there are some guys in their class right now that can receive uh, recruiting bumps. I think that um, Aiden Gobera is one of them. Um, who yeah. started his season really well. His junior is delayed junior season. So, um, and they're certainly aiming high for a lot of the guys that they're still going after. And, and you're right to point out that the, the number of guys in the class certainly plays a role. And I'm not sure how big, they can get the recruited class. And I, I, I'd be curious to see like what that looks like at other schools too. Cause everyone, I think you would think that a lot of teams are going to be dealing with the same sort of scholarship crunch issues because of uh, how the COVID stuff has affected things. So um, I think that uh, um, that's going to be sort of fascinating to watch on a national level of how, how big these recruiting classes get. Well, I think Notre Dame came up with a pretty sound strategy on how to deal with that. And that's to, pretend like the COVID exemption didn't happen. Just mm-hmm. have guys, seriously, have guys go through in their four to five years if they've got their degree and they're not, you know, a guy that's going to contribute a lot, encourage them to move on either into the NFL, into uh, another program or into the working world. Because again, right now, if you look at it technically, there are going to be 61 freshmen on the roster um, through redshirting, through natural being a freshman, and through the COVID exemptions. For example, Kyron Williams, by that definition, is a freshman. But you can't have 61 guys leave your program at the same time. You can't even have 40 leave your program at the same time. So they have to continue to kind of spread things out. And I think just ignoring the COVID exemption, except in rare cases, and there were only two this year for them in um, Kurt Heinisch and uh, and Jonathan Doerr, I think that's the way that you've got to play it to be able to manage this right and to be able to take advantage of this surge in recruiting that in part is fueled by Marcus Freeman's presence, by Mike Elston's leadership, and also by being in the playoff two of the last three years. Yeah, and hopefully for Notre Dame, uh, more more involvement from Brian Kelly as well. Um, the, that's actually in my inside recruiting uh, column that's running in the Tribune this week. All right, that's a tease. All right, one one more for for us for place your bets over under one hundred and fifteen touches for running back Chris Tyree this season. And you're counting returns as touches, correct? Uh, no, I was thinking just offensive touches. So oh, okay, we'll see. I'm glad I asked because that no, yeah, that's a good uh, changes in the math. Because 
with with kickoff returns, he was at 103, and without them, I think he's at 81 touches. Correct. Last year. Now that was in 12 games rather than 13. Um, you know, I I wrote this last week. I think he's one of the top eight players on the team, and I think you have to figure out a way to use both of those guys. And I think Notre Dame will figure out a way to get him 115 or more touches. So I am saying over. Yeah, I'm going to go over as well. He had 81 last season, as you mentioned. Kyron had 246. Um, so I think they could probably take a little bit of that load off of Kyron. Um, one thing that bo- worries me a little bit is what what does that mean for Sebo Fleming? And not not that it worries me in terms of like how does its offense look, but is can Sebo Flemister continue to sort of take some of those touches and prevent Chris Tyree from getting up over the 115 mark? I think that that could potentially be uh, something that happens, but. I just think that they're going to be creative and getting them both on the field at the same time, potentially, um, and getting them involved in different, in different ways. We didn't really see them use a ton as receivers um, out of the backfield. Um, and, Tyron, yes. Tyree, no. But. Yeah, that, and Kyron, especially at the, at the end of the season. And that, so I think that may have been a little bit of a – and even Chris Tyree, he was used as a receiver somewhat in the, in the Alabama game, even early on before it was lopsided. So I, I think that – um, that is something that they're going to probably look into doing more and find ways to doing more, especially if your offensive line is having some some issues, just get the ball to the running back in space and let it uh, with a pass. I think that that takes a lot of pressure off the offensive line and the quarterback as well. So um, I think uh, I will go over um, and uh, leave my Chris Tyree pessimism in the past from last preseason. All right. Now it's time for questions. Just tell me when you guys are, are we done with USC? Everybody's like, you guys are kidding me. That's all you want to talk about. All right, let's go. You can submit questions to us on Twitter before each podcast. I'm at TJamesNDI and Eric's at EHansonNDI. First one I have for us is from at Coffee Dark Roast. In 2018, it was uh, Tavon Coney. In 2019, it was Asmar Bilal and Chase Claypool. In 2020, it was Javon McKinley. Who needs to click in 2021? Well, I'll give you a two on each side of the ball. I'll go with Kevin Austin. I think they need a monster receiver, and they need him to be the guy they think he is. And then, obviously, Jack Cohn. I mean, you need right. to have a quarterback that that can play. Uh, you don't want too much of a drop-off from Ian Book, and I'm, I'm curious what Jack is going to look like. I saw the Wisconsin-Michigan game Jesse was talking about, and Jack Cohn really surprised me in that game. There was a point where I think uh, Taylor, their running back, had to come out of the game for an, a minor injury, and he just kept them going. And I, that's what really surprised me. I haven't seen a lot of him, but, but that game did impress me. On defense, I'm going to say Houston Griffith as a guy that has been – kind of a mystery why it hasn't happened before now. And I'll say Isaiah Foskey, and I, I absolutely expect him to click. Um, and he's, he's done nothing but show that he's ready to click, but they need a, an elite pass rusher. So uh, I'm going to pick Foskey too. Yeah, I think, um, I think you nailed it with those, those selections. I, I, I didn't really keep Cone in mind just as he's a transfer. And I was trying to think of guys, 
and that was kind of how it, guys that have been in the program for a while and it starts to click for. Um, and so Kevin Austin's at the top of that list. And obviously injury has a big, big part of why um, he wasn't able to do that last year. Um, and uh, Houston Griffith as well at safety. Now, I think it makes sense that those are the guys that I think, I think if you ask this to a lot of people, they would probably pick the same people. Those are the guys that they need to have that. But I mean, it could certainly be different people. Like there could be another wide receiver that can play to the level of what we think Kevin Austin can play to, whether that's a young guy like Jordan Johnson or whether that's Braden Lindsay finally taking on the role of, as a, of a star receiver. Um, and Houston Griffith, maybe it's like DJ Brown, a guy that's sort of perennially in the shadows and finally just, gets a chance to to play and steps up um, at safety. But those are the positions I think that they need the most, uh, one of those veteran guys to step up, um, if not both of those guys to step up and and, and really produce for them. Next question is from at D.O. Carroll1. Which recent practice highlight is most likely to be overvalued or misinterpreted come fall camp? What practice footage would you want to see more of? (laughs) Well, I giggle at the practice footage because I think that I'm either really stupid or a lot of people overreach in terms of their interpretations (laughs) of things because it's so much lacking context. So I will say past completions as an overrated element in that you may just see the one pass that that guy threw well and then a guy caught well. And they could have dropped every other pass. They could have been throwing ducks the rest of the time. So that, to me, is where it really lacks context. What would I like to see more of? The whole practice and in person. (laughs) Uh, Lacking that, I would say 11-on-11 periods, you know, some sustained 11-on-11 periods. That would at least give you some sequencing in terms of plays rather than just kind of cherry picking the best ones. Yeah. And I'll, I'll go with the second question first to follow up on that. I, I think more, I mean, and this is, this isn't what this won't happen, but more like zoomed out and not tight on the ball to kind of see what's going on on the field around the play that's developing. Um, and also then we can also sort of pick up on what the defense is looking like and what, who's playing where obviously we're still trying to do that um, a little bit with the, the tight, the tight uh, views that we get. Um, but that would be what I would want. If we're, if we're not allowed to see it in person, that would be what I would like to see more of just to get a better understanding of what's going on. Um, but yeah, I think, I think pretty much any and all highlights are overvalued and misinterpreted when it comes to practice. Uh, um, because, uh, Notre Dame's the one who gets to choose what they're showing us. Um, and obviously they have uh, a rhyme or reason to what they want to show us as well. So, um, I think there's always going to be, um, too much emphasis put on that, especially from the fans. I, I think it's upon, incumbent upon us as reporters to not get uh, wooed by some things like that um, and, and understand that there's probably a lot more going on. Than- well, I'll give you an example of, of that. This is even when we were allowed into practices. And Andrew Hendricks either told me this for a story or he told us on the podcast. But in 2012, when they had a four-man competition, they did a really good job of showing each of those four quarterbacks getting some reps with the ones. Andrew Hendricks said on the days the media wasn't in there that Everett Golson took every number one uh, snap. So, so they definitely have an agenda on what they want us to be thinking. <laughs> right. 
For sure. Yeah. So yeah, they can even mess with us even when we were allowed to be there. Um, let alone uh, when we're, we don't we don't get any access at all. Um, next question we have is from at BFRA underscore Marie. Are you hearing anything about Notre Dame going after Tyke Smith, a safety from West Virginia, in the transfer portal? Do you think they would have a chance to get him? And how do you see him fitting in? He's a really good player. He was like a third team All American, um, and he said that Notre Dame was one of the teams that he did hear from. Uh, I don't think that Notre Dame is going to be able to get deeply involved with him. I don't know, again, whether his credits would have transferred or not, but it sounds like Penn State is the favorite to land him and that George is pretty deeply involved as well because he had a position coach that left West Virginia for Georgia. Right. And uh, so that they're – I think pretty deep in the mix. I would, I would think it's going to be one of those two schools. What kind of player would he be? Boy, he would be a, I mean, he's the player that I think the ND coaches hope Houston Griffith turn into. I mean, he can play the ball. Well, he can play in the box. I mean, he's a pretty versatile safety and, and a guy that I think is better in college than he was perceived to be coming out of high school. I'm much better being a third team all American. Yeah, I, I think Notre Dame is certainly going to do its research on Tyke. Um, like you mentioned, he, he told he told reporters that Notre Dame had reached out to him. I think Chris O'Leary is going to try to figure out if there's a match there. And uh, I think, like I mentioned earlier, I think Notre Dame has to be careful with safeties after t- t- talking in talking Houston Griffith into staying. Um, but I think Tyke is the kind of player that you would just take and deal with the consequences later. Um, but, but the, the issue is if, like, if you make too much of an overt effort to get him and then Houston Griffith finds out about that, then how does Houston Griffith feel about that? I think that's that's kind of the sticky situation you have to sort of navigate as a coaching staff. Um, but, yeah, I, I, there are there's no, like, clear connections, at least that I've discovered uh, yet. I haven't done a ton of homework on, on Tyke Smith. Um, but usually a, a lot of the transfers, you can kind of see how those – how those work out. And there's usually some sort of connection to the program, whether it's um, coaches knowing coaches um, or like, even like Nick McLeod, new Troy, new Troy pride. And they had connections there and he played um, in, in, in a place in South Carolina that they were familiar with in high school and obviously played against him at NC state. So um, I think uh, there's a lot of factors that are usually involved that allow Notre Dame to get guys like, like those guys as grad transfers. And I'm not sure that there's a lot of, those markers that I see at least yet uh, for Techie Smith that would, that would lead him to ending up in Notre Dame. Then one thing I'll add is, you know, it almost would have been a perfect year for them to still have the, you have to sit out a year transfer because then they could take him be, and then he would be eligible when you lose both Griffith and Hamilton right. after the 2021 season. And when I was talking to Mike Renner yesterday from pro football focus, he thinks, Kyle Hamilton will be a top 10 pick next year. Yeah, it was interesting. Uh, even uh, Kyron Williams was catching passes for Ian Book in the uh, uh, pro day segment. I was like, ah, I wonder if Kyron Williams is going to be participating in a pro day of his own next year. Um, because uh, as if he has as good of a season as he had last year, I don't know that a running back's going to want to stay that long in, in college. Um, and it would make sense for him to get out of here too. So, um, But uh, <laughs> let's not uh, get Notre Dame fans too panicked yet by talking about guys that might not be here the following season uh, before 2021. So 
Uh, next question we have, speaking of pro days from I, at IrishFan102, who improved their dra- draft stock on pro-, pro day and whose stock dropped? Well, um, you know, again, I, I leaned on Mike Renner from Pro Football Focus. I mean, certainly Jeremiah Wusukormoa confirmed his projection as a number one, you know, a first round draft pick. I don't, I don't know that he helped it, but he certainly confirmed what everybody thought. And I think that's helping yourself. Sure. Um, I think Tommy Tremble ha- was the big winner yesterday. He had incredible numbers. He caught the ball well. He excelled in the areas where there were, I don't want to say doubts, but questions about how good he was. Again, remember, he's been the sidekick to Cole Komet and then Michael Mayer. And so he's not been the featured tight end as a receiver. And I, I think people are looking at him saying his best football's ahead of him. And uh, so I think he did well. I, I probably disagree a little bit with Mike in terms of the three kids that weren't invited to the quote unquote combine. Right. Sean Crawford. Nick McLeod and Brock Wright, all three of those kids ran well. I mean, they're not expected to get drafted. Maybe it makes a difference between getting a phone call five minutes after the draft <laughs> and a few days after. But but I think, you know, that can only help you. You were at a 4-3-7, and you're picking among, uh, you know, end of the draft kind of beginning of the free agent kind of guys. I would think that gives Nick McLeod an edge, even if Najee Harris hurdled him in the playoff game <laughs> yeah I wonder like the perspective on Nick McLeod is interesting to me I I, I being transparent I, I watch the offense way more when I go to rewatch games because I do a lot of stat tracking and, and analysis of the offense so I don't rewatch the defense as much but I, I know Nick McLeod didn't have a ton of like he wasn't like always making plays um, and certainly got beat at times like every cornerback in the history of cornerbacks has um, but it's interesting to me, like people, why people are so down on him. And, and I think a lot of us assume it was because, well, maybe he wouldn't test well. And then he goes out and tests well. And so um, I, I would, I, I don't have the time to necessarily go back and, and watch the tape on him, but I think that it's going to be incumbent upon scouts to do that. Um, so I'm kind of curious to see what happens with him. If, if, if the tape really doesn't match the four, three, seven, or um, if, uh, and, and what, what, what his like future looks like and, and Brock Wright as well. I thought tested really well. Sean Crawford tested well too. His injury history is going to certainly. Yeah. Really prevent him from being drafted. Um, and obviously he just doesn't have any, any size either, but um, he, he can run around that, and that so no matter how many injuries he's had, that hasn't really changed. Um, so that was good to see those guys do that. I, I thought Dalen Hayes put up some good numbers as well um, as, as a defensive end. Um, and that could be um, attractive to him because I, I don't know that his his athleticism always translated to the field as well. I think that I think that we always maybe expected a little more from Dalen than he than he put out on the field in terms of production. Um, and I, I think uh, scouts will certainly probably see b- beyond that. Um, so I, I didn't really see or, or nothing really came to me as guys whose stock dropped. Um, I think a lot of the guys who, if they think their stock would have dropped in something, just don't participate in those events. Um, and so that, that protects them a little bit. Um, I, I think Devon McKinley didn't necessarily jump up because he didn't run a, 
I, he ran what was expected, in my opinion, in the 40 and, at, at 4 5 7. And, um, if he were to run like a 4 4, maybe people would be like, oh man, maybe we need to take another look at Javon McKinley. And um, certainly Ben Skoranek, who didn't uh, do the workouts because of a foot injury, has the confidence that he would surprise some people. And I would have been interested to see uh, what his, his times would have been as well. Next question is from at coffee, dark roast. Who are your most overrated and underrated ND draft prospects under the Charlie Weiss and Kelly, Brian Kelly eras? Yeah, I, I struggled a little bit with the question because I'm wondering underrated and overrated by who, but I'll, I think I came up with answers on that. I would say underrated. I would say Harrison Smith, uh, because I don't think there was a lot of buzz leading up to the draft for him. And he ended up going in the first round, which surprised a lot of people. And he has absolutely played up to if not exceeded that. Um, so I would say he was underrated. He's a guy that early in his career was miscast as an outside linebacker. And Brian Kelly moved him back to safety. And boy, he just absolutely took off there. And then I, I guess I would say overrated. I hate to say this because I think he got a bad break going to Cleveland, but I think Deshaun Kaiser um, and then Troy Nicholas, and I hate to say it in Troy's case because he was so unlucky with injuries. I mean, the guys had a zillion surgeries and come back and got his uh, Notre Dame degree. Um, and he's, he's a fun interview, but you know, I mean, for a second round draft choice, I don't think Arizona Cardinals got their money out of that pick. And again, I wonder what would have happened to Kaiser had he gone to a different team than Cleveland right out of the gate. Yeah, I think when I, when you talk about the overrated guys, there's certainly guys who didn't pan out um, that were drafted highly. But I, I, I didn't like say, well, that's a stupid pick. Like I didn't think uh, Michael Floyd in the first round was a dumb pick. I think everyone thought Michael Floyd was going to be a great NFL player and that didn't pan out. So I wouldn't like qualify him as overrated in, in this discussion, in my opinion. Um, now maybe people would feel differently. His personal issues is what, are what dragged him out. Down. And I, yeah, I mean, uh, usually, I mean, a lot of the guys that end up being overrated, there's usually something more to what went wrong with their career. I think you could even say like Tyler Eifert didn't pan out to be what people wanted to be. He started that way in his career and then he had injuries as well. Um, Manti Teo was probably, uh, people had higher ex- expectations for him than what his his career has turned out to be. But uh, I I thought Troy Nicholas was the overrated uh, guy to me. Um, I, I didn't think he was a complete tight end when he was leaving Notre Dame, and it was a bit of a surprise that he left, and then that he would go as high as he got picked. It, it, it seemed like the right decision for, for him to leave because he did get picked number 52 overall. And um, I know – I believe uh, – like – part of his reasoning was that he wanted to get to a second contract sooner. And that was sort of right. the pitch that was made to him. And he never really got to that second contract. Um, and so that was unfortunate for him. Um, underrated to me, I just kind of went with a guy that I, I just, to me, I just go to the under undrafted guys and Romeo Aquara um, oh, yeah. is the guy, in my opinion, he's already made over $8 million in five seasons. He just signed a three years, $37 million contract and he didn't, uh, he didn't get drafted, so I think he was definitely underrated, uh, at least uh, in the eyes of uh, all the teams that didn't draft him. And uh, he's made the most of his opportunities uh, with the Detroit Lions and got to uh, decide to stay in Detroit to play with Julian a little bit, little bit longer. 
Yeah, I think Ian Williams would have been in that category had he stayed healthy. He had just signed a a huge second contract, and then there was an injury, and that contract was voided, and now he's out of the league. But, yeah, he would have been in that situation too. It's interesting with Kaiser and Nicholas both because if there were two guys that Brian was critical about leaving early, it was those two. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, and he, uh, I guess, I don't know that I would say he was right because I, especially for Troy, he, he certainly had the opportunity to, to make that the right decision for him. And, um, Deshaun had an opportunity too, and it just didn't work out with, with being in a bad situation. Um, and, uh, hasn't been able to make the most out of any other opportunities since then. Um, next one is from at Kyle O'Shea. What is Jeremiah Usukormo's workout routine and how do I successfully avoid it for the rest of my life? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I know that when I interviewed him as a, um, before he got to Notre Dame, before he was in their workout routine, he jumped on the trampoline a lot and he had to answer math questions before he was uh, allowed to jump on the trampoline. Mm-hmm. And he also answers fake phone calls. And so uh, those are the two things that I know that he does well outside of what Matt Bayless is giving him. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to see uh, like when at the pro day, I mean, you get, you see those guys stripped down and you see like, Oh man, you didn't, you, you understand like he's a great football player. You're like, man, he is, he is like a statue out there. Like that's you put him in, put him in a museum and put him on a pedestal and let him stand there. He looks like a statue. Um, but he, he mentioned the other day during the, the uh, pro day press conference that he's really focused on eating the right foods consistently. Um, and uh, so that's kind of scary to think that I mean, he, he still is tapping into um, some potential that he hasn't reached yet with where, as it relates to his body. So um, I think he's doing the right things for sure. <laughs> and uh, certainly uh, he's not, we're not going to be giving him any tips anytime soon. <laughs> Uh, last one we have somewhat related from at Mikey Gal, who has better abs, Jeremiah, Tyler, or Eric? And he said kegs are greater than six packs. Uh, you know what? I don't subscribe to that belief. I appreciate <laughs> that you like my keg or, or Tyler's keg. Um, but Jeremiah has better abs than everybody. <laughs> I can say, I can safely say I've, drank more six packs than Jeremiah has drank. <laughs> I think that's about the only six pack related conversation that I have an advantage on Jeremiah uh, when it, when it relates to that. But uh, I think uh, I was a little disappointed that we didn't get to see more of everything that Jeremiah did yesterday uh, during the pro day uh, telecast, but uh, certainly I imagine he did plenty to impress the, the NFL personnel that was there in person. That's it for today's episode of Pot of Gold. If you don't already, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you like what you hear, shoot us some stars and leave a review. Uh, we're shooting to have a weekly schedule here now during spring ball, so you should be hearing us from us often in April. And as always, stick with NDInsider.com for all your Notre Dame spring football coverage needs.